I'll invite you to turn your Bibles. I've got a special Mother's Day message for you. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. We've been teaching a series on authority, and uh, mothers need to know about authority, so we decided we were going to teach on authority today. I know we want to continue the series that we have been teaching. We've talked a, a lot about authority, different aspects of, of it. Uh, there's still a lot more to, to, uh, to cover, but uh, one of the things that we found is that authority is, always has boundaries. Adam, for example, was given authority on the earth. God said, let us make man in our own image and let him or them, mankind, have dominion over the works of our hands. Well, Adam and Eve being the first, they had dominion over the whole earth. But you and I do not. Our authority is limited to the boundaries of our own lives. So we've been using as a scripture, a text scripture, Luke chapter 10, Jesus has commissioned the uh, 70 and told them to go out and uh, preach the gospel in towns where he would come to after they returned. And uh, the, the beginning in verse 19, the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Folks, I want you to understand your authority is based on Satan being defeated. He's not talking about now that Jesus is raised from the dead. He was talking about then. Satan was a defeated foe then. He was a rebel authority holder. Because it was given to mankind, Satan stole it from man. Jesus goes further and says, verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power. Now, we say this every time we read this verse, but it's important for you to recognize. In the King James, the word power is uh, in this verse twice. But they're two separate words from the Greek. So he said, Behold, I give unto you power, meaning delegated power, meaning authority. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Now, what are serpents and scorpions? People get weird on things like this. But he identifies that as being over all the power of the enemy. He says, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. So serpents and scorpions must be a type of Satan's power. Because then he says, and it doesn't just work where trading with serpents and scorpions is concerned, but it's over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. What's he telling us? He's telling us the first and foremost thing we need to know about authority, and that is you have complete authority in your life. He didn't say because of your authority nothing will hurt the other guy. He said nothing shall hurt you by any means. So we see that, that authority, we have absolute authority in our own lives. Now, folks, this is where people get weird on things because they think God has authority in their lives. But God delegated that authority to you. Jesus didn't say, because I'm the Son of God, I have authority, so nothing shall by any means hurt you. No, he said, you have authority. And that's where people get weird about sovereignty and and issues about the will of God. And if God wants it, it's just going to happen. Well, if God wants it, it's not going to happen unless you exercise your authority to have it. God wants everybody to be saved. The Bible's real clear on that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 1 through 4 says God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if God wants all men to be saved, why aren't all men saved? Because they don't use their authority and accept salvation. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. That's the way it works. By the same measure, by the same token, the Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we are healed. Now, whoever we is is healed. I know that's not good English, but you get the point. Whoever is included in we was healed by the stripes of Jesus. Well, what does we mean? We means you and me. We means the person that was writing it and the, per- the people that read it. So therefore, it's the will of God for all men to be healed. 
But it's not going to happen just because it's the will of God. It's only going to happen by you exercising your authority to receive what God's already done for you. That's what Jesus is saying. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy in your own life, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, I wish we could exercise authority in other people's lives. Man, I'd change a lot of stuff if we could do that. But that's not how it works. So we've talked about authority in relation to faith. We looked at uh, uh, Matthew chapter uh, 8 where it talked about the centurion. The centurion had great faith because of his understanding of authority. He said to Jesus, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, but you don't even have to come to my house because I understand how authority works. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. How did he know that? Because he had a people under him that were under his authority that when he told them to go do something, he knew they carried out his, act, his, uh, his desires or his commands. He said, I realize, Jesus, you have the same authority over sickness, so just say the word. Folks, you need to understand this. You get an understanding of authority, and you don't have to hope for or wish for if only Jesus is here on the earth like he was in the book of the four Gospels. All you've got to do is take the spoken word and exercise the same authority as Jesus being here in the flesh. That's what the centurion understand. And Jesus marveled. He said, I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. This great faith, I haven't found that in all of Israel. Israel should have been the ones that knew because they had the, the information about God. The centurion, uh, the Roman centurion, didn't know anything about the law of Moses, didn't know anything that we have record of at least, about the things that Israel knew about God, yet he understood authority. And so he said, I'll take it, just say it. So we see authority has something to do with faith. So we know that authority is, is absolute in our own lives. I know that's hard for some people to accept. But that's what the Bible says. Authority is absolute in our lives. Now, you have to stand up for your authority. There are times where you're going to have to fight the devil to exercise your authority. It does not mean having authority in your life and authority being absolute in your life doesn't mean you can just say the word and things will just work like magic. There are times where you're going to have to fight for it. Think of it like this. If there was a... a, a we don't, if, well, we do have somebody on our southern border. If Mexico invaded our country, and I, I know you know what would happen, diplomats would sit around, politicians sit around and say, hey, what's up with this? And let's say they, they took over part of the southwestern part of the United States. And all the time the diplomats were trying to figure things out and make them go back and doing all this other kind of stuff, they stayed there. Well, okay, sooner or later, if we're going to take our territory back, we're going to have to do something and fight for it right? So then let's say they start the fight and let's say they push them back some, but in other areas they push back, Mexico comes further in. There is going to be a fight and it may be a protracted fight, but if you're going to take back that which belongs to you, you're going to have to stand for it and sometimes fight over it. That's the way it works by faith. Faith is not an overnight magic wand. Instantly it'll happen. There are times where you're going to have to see just like Mexico in that illustration would have to see how serious we are about taking back our own territory. You're going to have to show the devil just how serious you are about possessing what the Bible says is yours. Now turn back with me to Genesis chapter 18. What about praying for others? We can use our own authority in prayer where our lives are concerned, but what about praying for others? Genesis chapter 18 tells us the story of of, uh, Abraham and God telling him, telling Abraham what he's going to do about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in the 18th chapter of Genesis, the Lord appears to Abraham. We'll start reading in verse uh, 18. There were uh, three people that appeared. One was uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, apparently, and the other two were angels. 
And so they came to Abraham and Abraham received them with uh, great hospitality and that type of thing. And so the two angels got up and they started going towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you remember the story, I hope. If not, we'll recap a little bit. Abraham and his nephew Lot had been together for many years. Their uh, herds increased, their flocks increased, so much so that all their servants, as they multiplied their servants, started fighting with each other over grazing land and, uh, and watering holes and stuff like that. And finally, Abraham said, this isn't right. It isn't right that we, family members, should be fighting over the things that God has blessed us with. I tell you what, you take your flocks and your herds and your servants and you choose where you want to go and I'll go the other direction. We're too big. The land uh, is not great enough to, to handle all of us now. And so Lot decided he's going to go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, where the cities were. So Abraham, the man of faith, who always takes what's left. I mean, the covenant's with Abraham, not Lot. Abraham had every right to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick where I want to be. But that's not the way faith works, folks. Faith will make something out of nothing because God's with you. So Abraham said, Lot, you go where you want to. I'll take what's left. Lot went towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Pretty poor choice, as it turned out. So now, many years later, the Lord appears and speaks to Abraham concerning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says in verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I've got a covenant with him, in other words. He deserves to know what I'm going to do. Folks, you've got a covenant with God too. You can know what God's going to do concerning your life as well. If you'll stand on that promise. So he goes further and he says, for I know Abraham. Here's the Lord speaking that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. That's the only thing you can find in any place, anywhere, why God might have chosen Abraham instead of choosing somebody else. It's we think of Abraham as being a Jew. Abraham was not a Jew. God didn't look from heaven when it came time to make a covenant and say, well, okay, who's got the little round thing on his head that I can pick from? Abraham was not a Jew. He was not. God picked Abraham out of the blue, at least that's the way it looks to us, and says, okay, I'm going to make a covenant with him. Why him and not some other guy? Abraham was worshiping idols at the time that God found him. There was nothing about Abraham. There was nothing about his behavior. There's nothing about his lifestyle that we have any indication whatsoever for as to a reason why God would have picked Abraham to make a covenant. This is the only thing God says about his character. He says he'll teach and train his children to go the right way. Does that mean Abraham was the only person on the earth that would have done that? I don't know. I don't see how anybody could conclude that. But that was an outstanding characteristic that Abraham was identified by Here in Genesis chapter 18. The only thing that the Bible ever says from God's perspective of why he might have chosen Abraham. Okay? His relationship with his family was a key. So then he goes further in verse 20 and the Lord says, he's going to tell him what he's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous. Now the word grievous is a root word in the the Hebrew language. Uh, there are other times in the Old Testament that the word grievous is translated or into the English, but it's not the same word. It's a, it's a variation from this word. The Hebrew rule is this. The greatest or the most goes back to the original root. For example, if you've got an original root word grievous, which means severe or great, and then you have other words that are offshoots or variations of that original root word in the Hebrew. That means they may be severe and they may be great just as well, but not as great as the original. 
This same word, um, or an offshoot, a variation of this word, is translated in Genesis chapter 12 as grievous, where it talks about the famine that was in the land was very grievous. Well, it means it was severe. It means it was a great famine. But the fact that the, and the, the Hebrew rule is the fact that this is the root word and the other is the variation means this is greater or more severe than the other would be. Beyond that, we don't know. So it says their sin is very grievous. It's severe. It's great. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is coming to me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. We read through this quickly in verse 20, and you probably didn't see it. Notice it didn't say the people of Sodom and Gomorrah cry unto me. It says the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And I will go down and see whether they, people, have done altogether according to the cry of it. It meaning the cities. Folks, this is the principle that the Bible brings out when it says in, uh, in Romans, it says the earth groans and travails, waiting for the appearing of the sons of God. God created the earth in a perfect and a pristine manner. When sin invaded the earth through Adam and Eve, it messed up God's original creation. And from that time forward, the earth has been crying out. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't hear it. Don't get twilight zone on me. I'm not saying anything that we hear. God says the cities are crying out unto me. Not the people. People are involved in the sin. He said the cities, the earth is crying out unto me, so I'm going to go down and see if the sin is altogether that that which is according to the cry that I've heard. Whatever you want to think about that, that's what it says. So Abraham stands yet before the Lord. The two men, the two angels start going towards Sodom and Gomorrah, but Abraham stands yet before the Lord. This is a type of prayer. This is an example of how we have have a place of authority in praying for others. But remember, authority is always based on boundaries. You can have authority, so then therefore the key is to know what extent or what limit does your authority go. I know what the limit of my authority is in my own life. It's absolute. But regarding things where my wife and I interact, then my authority starts lessening where hers starts taking over. It works that way in any relationship. A partnership in a business. If you're in business by yourself, you have absolute authority in that business. If you've got a partner, you don't have absolute authority. You're going to have to work it out, work out the relationship between the two of you in regards to the authority you make, the authority you have and the decisions you make. That's the way it works with anybody and everybody else in life. Authority in a marriage is shared. Authority in the home is shared. Authority in any relationship, any human interaction is shared. Here it says that God, uh, that Abraham stands before the Lord to talk about other people. How far does his authority go? He doesn't seem to know. From the way he prays, he doesn't seem to know absolutely or completely. So he stands before the Lord and says, verse 23, Lord, will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure, what if there are 50 righteous people within that city? Will you also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? That wouldn't be the thing for you to do. That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the wicked should be as the right, that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
And fire fell from heaven and burned him to a crisp. That's the way a lot of people would think if you talked like that to God. But when you have a relationship through covenant like Abraham did, you can talk real plain to the Lord. He's not getting in God's face about anything. He's saying, wait a minute here. Aren't you going to do right by this? Now, folks, we don't have any record in any way whatsoever that Abraham ever visited Sodom and Gomorrah. So if he knows anything about them, he's going to know just what he's heard from people that have come and gone and maybe traveled over the land where he is and where all of his stuff is. Outside of that, we would have no way to assume or even imagine that he would know anything about what's going on in the city, right? So here's my question. What does Abraham mean when he's looking for righteous people? Isn't he the only one that's got a covenant with God? Who else could be righteous? What does he mean when he says if there's 50 righteous people in the city? What does he mean? We know under the new covenant, righteousness is based on acceptance of Jesus, receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Under the old covenant, the Mosaic law, which hadn't, it doesn't come for another 400 years, or more than that, really. The old covenant, Moses' law, Righteousness was based on the keeping of the law. There's not even a keeping of the law. There's no law to keep when Abraham is asking this. What does he mean righteous? He must have some some concept of righteousness, but what is it? What does he mean? He can't be saying if there's 50 other people that have a covenant with you, will you spare the city for their sakes? He can't be saying that. He knows he's the only one. God's already told him, you're the one. So what does he mean? He must have the understanding, and this is the only thing I can assume. You figure it out for yourself. Disagree if you like. Give me a better example, a better idea. The only thing I can come up with is that he must understand that righteousness in God's sight at that moment in time is based on either doing right versus doing wrong. Otherwise, what could righteous mean? So Abraham says, what if there are 50 people in the city that are doing right? That wouldn't be right to destroy the city. Now, sometimes I've heard this, uh, this example, uh, Genesis chapter 18, used as a type of intercession. He's not praying for the sinners. He's asking on behalf of the righteous that he supposes are in the city. So this is not a type of intercession. You can't make intercession for somebody that's already saved or somebody that's right in the sight of God. Intercession means to stand in between two. Well, if somebody is joined together with God through salvation... There is no standing in between those. That was the whole thing about doing away with the priesthood. God's very clear. There is no man that stands in between the individual and himself now except Jesus. That's why it's about accepting Jesus, not about belonging to this church or that church or keeping some kind of ritual or whatever. So he can't be making intercession for the righteous. There's no such thing as that. So therefore, this would be a type of what we know of as supplication. A lot of people have questions. Supplications all through the New Testament. What's supplication? Well, Abraham shows you what it is right here. He's praying or talking to God. That's all prayer is, communication with God. He's talking to God on behalf of those who have rights before God. And that's what Abraham's saying. He's saying, wouldn't the righteous people have a right to be spared? It wouldn't be right of you, God, to destroy them with the wicked. You don't treat the righteous and the wicked in the same way. He must be talking about lifestyle. He must be talking about behavior. And then the Lord answers. 
Now, we would expect God to get mad from the way some people talk about how we should pray and so forth. We would expect God to get mad. But the Lord says in verse 26, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I'll spare all the place for their sakes. Please notice that, folks. He will spare the whole of the city, the cities that are crying out because of grievous sin. We know the sin is homosexuality. He said, I'll spare the whole place for 50 righteous sake. Now, was that God's idea or was that Abraham's idea? Must be Abraham's idea. Otherwise, God would have told Abraham, I've heard from Sodom and Gomorrah, their cry has come up unto me and I'm going down. Now, if I find enough righteous people there, I won't do anything about it. But, now this seems to be Abraham's idea. Abraham must be the one initiating this. So the Lord said, yeah, okay, for 50, I'll spare it for 50. And Abraham answered and said, behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. In other words, I know I don't have a right to ask this, but peradventure there shall lack five of the 50 righteous. Will you destroy the city for lack of five? And the Lord answered and says, if I find 45, I won't destroy it. Well, 45 would have the same rights as 50, wouldn't they? And he spake unto him yet again and said, peradventure there shall be 40 found. And the Lord said, no, I won't do it for 40. He's negotiating with God. Now, I know a lot of people tell you you can't do that. But Abraham's doing that. And he's initiating it, not God. And he said unto him, verse 30, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure, what if there's 30 be found there? And he said, I won't do it if I find 30. And then Abraham said, Behold, now I've taken upon me to speak there. Uh, speak unto the Lord peradventure there shall be 20 found there and he said I won't destroy it for 20 sake I want you to notice once once uh, Abraham gets to the place where he thinks uh, I'm pushing it now he starts talking about how unworthy he is I'm worthy to ask for 50 I'm worthy to ask for 45 I'm worthy to ask for 40 Lord I'm not worthy to ask for 30 why what changes God doesn't change in the way he answers God doesn't say when it gets to 30 and says, you are are really pushing it. This better be the last time you ask me. Yet that seems to be a lot of people's idea and attitude when it comes to us praying for things. Asking God for things. That the church world considers us to be unworthy of. You know, stuff that Jesus paid for like healing. Lord, I'm not worthy for your healing power. Really? Tell that to Jesus who shed his blood. Our idea of worthy and God's idea of worthy seem to be two different things. We judge based on ourselves. God judges based on the price that was paid for you. So Abraham says, oh, Lord, I know I shouldn't be asking this, but what about 20? Verse 31, and the Lord says, I will not destroy it for 20's sake. And finally, Abraham says, oh, let not the Lord be angry with me. Why? Why would God be angry with him? He's not asking for himself. He's not saying, you know, I've got a vacation home over there in Gomorrah. And I'd really hate to see that destroyed. He's not asking for himself. Why should he be concerned about God being angry about this? Folks, there's only one reason, and that is religious thought. Which is the same thing that you and I sometimes are tempted to think. Hopefully we don't succumb to it. But the same thing that you and I are tempted to think when we see a promise from God and just barely dip our toe into the water and say, 
Lord, how about that? You know, something selfish like, Lord, I need more money so I can give. That's where the church, that's where religion will tell you, well, you, you are way off base there, way off base. If God wanted you to have more money, you'd have it. Kind of like salvation. If God wanted you to have it, he'd do something about it. He did. He sent Jesus. But it's still up to you to exercise your authority to receive it. If God wanted you to have healing, he'd do something about it. You mean like sending Jesus to pay for it with blood? That's what the Bible says he did. But in order for you to have it, you're going to have to exercise your authority to receive it. Yeah, but you're talking about selfish things. You're talking about material things. Folks, the Bible says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is translated prosperity in the Old Testament. That means Jesus paid the same price in blood for prosperity, financial well-being, material well-being, as he did for healing or for forgiveness of sins. Now, I know a lot of people don't like that, but that's what the Bible says. Now, don't, don't get upset. You have every right to reject that. I never have understood religious people. They want to fight for it. Well, the Bible says it. But don't worry, you don't have to have it. Well, I just don't want any of this world's goods. Fine, get out of the way. I'll take your share. I'm not going to let the ignorance of some people keep me from what Jesus paid for. But religious people want to fight about stuff. So, uh, what's his name? Abraham says, oh, Lord, don't be angry. But I'll speak yet this once. Now, if I was Abraham really worried about him being angry, I would have said, would you get upset if I asked you one more time? If so, we can just stop with 20. That'd be fine. What does Abraham know? What does he know about who's in the city? All he knows is Lot's there. That's all he knows that we have any information about. So he says, Lord, don't be angry, and I'll ask you one more time. What if there are 10 to be found there? I guess, I assume that Abraham's thing, he's counting. He's saying, well, there's Lot, there's his wife, there's his daughter, the two daughters. They've got husbands, so that's, what is that? That's uh, uh, six. Surely there's another few. Lord, what if there's 10? And the Lord said, I will not destroy the city for 10's sake. And the Lord went his way. You know when they quit their conversation? When Abraham stopped talking. In other words, this kind of praying seems to be determined by where the individual chooses to stop. Can I ask you a question? Does one righteous man have less right to have the blessing of God than 50? That seemed to be Abraham's thinking when he went from 50 to 45, to 40, to 30, to 20, and then to 10. What's the difference in 10 and 1? Put, Abra- put yourself in Abraham's position. If Abraham's thinking, Lord, if I was there, would you be doing this? I've got a covenant with you. The conversation stopped. God's willingness to save stopped when Abraham stopped. This is what supplication is, folks. It's laying hold of the rights of God on behalf of somebody else. You can do it for yourself too, but you can make supplication for others as well. Now let's talk a little bit more about the, about the situation. It tells us in chapter 19, we won't read through the whole thing, but chapter 19 tells us about the two angels that get to the city. 
Two angels go to the city, and the Bible says Lot's sitting in the gates. That's a sign of, of uh, prominence. It's a sign of authority. He's considered to be a great man in the city. Well, he probably came richer than anybody else when he brought all of his stuff, so that would explain that. So he's sitting in the gates of the city, and the two men approach him, and Lot says, what are you doing here? And the two men say, well, we have business in the city. And he says, well, come stay at my house. And the guys say, no, we'll stay in the street. He says, no, oh, no, you can't do that. You've got to come to my house. So they relent. They go to his house. Now, don't think for a minute that the, that the angels don't already know that Lot's there and don't know that he's Adam's, uh, Abraham's nephew and don't know that he's part of the covenant promise that Abraham has. They know these things. So anyway, they wind up going to his house. And even before they go, down, go lay down for bed, the city, the men of the city rise up and they come and stand outside of Lot's door and said, who are these two guys that you brought into the city? Bring them out here. We want to have sex with them. I'm assuming that at that moment, God's pretty sure about whether the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is justified. (laughs) Lot, however, being a just man. We have to assume that means he's not involved in the homosexual activity of the city. He, the Bible tells us that in just a minute anyway. Lot goes out and he says, no, 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 don't do this. This is wrong. Don't do this. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you my two daughters. They've never been with a man. I'll give you them. Now, folks, there's a lot about this story that doesn't really sit well with me. I've got to be honest with you. He's offering his daughters? Let me ask you something else. Why in the world would Lot have stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah when he saw what was going on there? If he went to the cities because he thought, well, there's cities there, there'll be commerce, it's a good place for business. Great. He gets there and sees what's going on. Why stay? What is the guy doing there? We know he's a great man in the city because he's sitting in the gates. Is that what kept him there? Well, you know, I don't like what's going on over here, but I'm kind of running the place. I have authority here. I have a place of prominence. Is that enough to keep you living in that kind of condition? Now that the, the men of the city say to him, we don't want your daughters. Now notice verse 9. I want you to see Genesis chapter 19, verse 9. I want you to see this. They said to him, stand back. The people of the city are saying to Lot, stand back. And then they said again, this one fellow came to sojourn and he will needs be a judge. Another translation says, we let you live here and now you're trying to judge us? Folks, I want you to understand something. The question of judging only comes up when people want to live in sin. Oh, you're judging me. Then the Bible says not to judge. Well, actually, that's kind of half right. The Bible says not to judge people. But it says that a spiritual man, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, says that a spiritual man judges all things. So you can judge activity as to whether it's right or wrong based on the word. And you're supposed to. So homosexual activity should be judged according to the word as to whether or not it is in line with it and proper or against it and improper. You don't have to judge the people that are involved in it, but you can judge the activity. And you're supposed to. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, I don't care if you judge me. It doesn't matter to me at all. I, I, I would invite you as, as members of the church, I would invite you to judge my life. If my life doesn't line up with what I'm preaching, don't listen to what I'm saying. How come it is that only people that are involved in sinful stuff 
are concerned about the judging part. But, oh, that's a big thing in the body of Christ. Now, we're not supposed to judge. In fact, we are. We don't judge the people. We do judge the activity. Now, here's the deal. People that are involved in wrong thing, wrong living, the wrong kind of lifestyle, they say the activity and the people can't be separated. And, folks, that was true at one time. In Abraham's day, that was true. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus separated man from sin. He judged sin and offered righteousness to man. Prior to that point in time, there was no judgment that could fall on sin except it fall on the individuals themselves. There's no way to separate man from sin. Jesus, through him, through being made as a man, through living a sinless life, through the offering of his blood, was the only thing that was ever able to entangle man in sin. So he came not to bring judgment on the earth. He came to bring judgment to sin. Romans 8, 1 says he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned, 8, 2, I guess it is. He condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean? That means he passed judgment on sin, but not man. So all this judgment stuff that you hear in the body of Christ, it's just an excuse to sin. So this guy's saying, or these people are saying, we let this guy come live with us and now he wants to be our judge. You better get out of the way or we'll do worse to you. It says the two angels reached around behind the open door, snatched him in and shut the door. Then they started beating on the door so the two angels caused a flash of the glory of God, I guess it was, to blind everybody. Then it says that they wearied to find the door. In other words, they're still searching around. Where is that door? We still want to get in. Folks, this sounds like a zombie movie. I mean, is this not unreal? Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The issue here is homosexuality. This is not the loving two people that just want to express their love toward one another. And it's just the church that keeps that from happening. We just want to love each other. Is that what this looks like to you? I want you to understand something. Now, I'm saying this, well, I'll, I'll get to it. I want you to understand something. The same spirit that drove homosexuality in Abraham's day is the spirit that drives it today. And this is the end result. The end result is to force everyone to accept it. They don't come to Lot's door and say, hey, is he interested? Are these two guys interested? They knew where they were coming. I guess it's a fair assumption. Are these two guys interested in being with the rest of us? Would they like to be gang raped by us guys? No, this is, the, this is not giving them any choice whatsoever. They're in our city limits. We run things here. This is the way it's going to be. Finally, the angels speak to Lot and say, okay, well, we've got our answers on this place. Gather everybody together. Get everybody together. We've got to get out of here. So you got Lot, you got his wife, you got his two daughters, and then and the two daughters get their sons-in-laws. The sons-in-laws, well, can't you imagine what a great place to pick a, a, a guy for your daughter? Let's go to the homosexual capital of the world and find a good guy. So 
So the two sons-in-laws hear what Lot's plan is to leave. They, they mock him. They say, you got to be kidding. Leave this paradise? So Lot takes off. He and his wife and his two daughters, they start running to the hills where the angels want to take him. But Lot says, you know, we can't survive in the hills. We can't survive. I want you to, that says to me that he's not looking for the blessing of God on him anymore. When he separated from, from Abraham, he's not looking for God's blessing on, on him anymore. He's just living as a natural man. So he says, we can't make it in the hills. Well, if God's with you, you can. Would you be telling the angels where to go and where not to go? Come on, they just saved your life. No, we can't go to the hills. We can't make it there. But I tell you what, there's a little city over there in the plains. It's, oh, it's a tiny city. Let us have that one. Isn't it small? That may speak to Lot's purpose for going to the city to begin with. Sodom and more. I don't know. Anyway, the whole plane, the Bible says the whole plane, except that one little city was, killed, was destroyed. On the way, Lot's wife turns back and looks. She must have had an affinity for the city as well. My home, my beautiful home, that wonderful place that we had to live. So she turns to a pillar of salt. Now, people say, yeah, that's Old Testament stuff. You're talking about homosexuality, that's Old Testament stuff. Romans chapter 1 says that there are, I, the Holy Ghost identifies two sins as being the basis and the foundation that bring, open the door for a whole lot of other sins. One is idolatry, the other is homosexuality. It says those that do it are worthy of death. Now, folks, please understand, sexual sin under the New Testament is spoken of as a work of the flesh. Can you be a Christian and commit adultery? Absolutely. Can you be a Christian and, and operate in homosexuality? Yeah, absolutely. But in spite of that, the Bible says that idolatry and homosexuality in Romans chapter 1 are the two base sins that open the door to all other kinds of sins. Backbiters, haters of God, despisers of that which is good, and so forth. It goes further and says those that do these things are worthy of death. It does not say that God will cast them into hell. That's not what it's talking about. A Christian that is, is operating in homosexuality is not going to be cast into hell, yet they are worthy of death. I think that has two meanings. I think number one is it's saying they're counting the salvation that they have as Jesus a light thing by operating in something so sinful. I think the second thing it means is it'll have a physical impact on the body. Beyond that, I don't know. However, the fact that the Holy Ghost identifies homosexuality as one of the two big sins seems to be that it's just as in the Old Testament it was a grievous sin, it must still be a grievous sin in the New Testament. So maybe God hadn't evolved on the issue. <laughs> but the point is authority. How much authority did Abraham have? Folks, he could have asked, will you spare it for Lot's sake? Now, would that have been the right thing or the best thing to do? Probably not. But it seems to indicate to us that Abraham had a standing with God so that he could have said, what about Lot? Now, what is that standing? What was the basis of that authority? Well, we see two things. Number one, we see that Abraham had a relationship with God through a covenant that God made with him. But secondly, and I think this is more important, and that is he had a family relationship. If he didn't have somebody there in his family, would Lot have been spared? Because there weren't ten found. That was all God said, I'll spare it for ten. There weren't ten found, yet 
the angels wind up telling Lot, you better hurry and get your stuff because I can't do anything until you get out of here. Why? Because of Abraham's authority through his covenant. We, I told you a story a couple of weeks ago. A gentleman in our church, I'm not, I, I didn't notice if he was here today, but um, uh, he's got a daughter that's a missionary. And the missionary daughter had a, a tumor. I, I think it was ovarian cancer. And this tumor was real large, and the doctors were saying this is a, a real critical situation. Uh, I think it was something that they, they weren't able to operate or didn't think they would be able to operate. And so they weren't giving her much hope for survival. And uh, so he started trying to share with her. She shared with her dad, here's what's going on. So he tried to tell her about healing school. He brought her to healing school. He gave her some of our healing school tapes and other people. She has listened to other people's teachings as well. I laid hands on her uh, with no apparent or, you know, immediate uh, change in the situation. But she finally got to the point after a period of time, over a month or two, whatever it was, over a period of time, she said, well, Daddy, what if my faith is not enough? She had heard enough faith teaching, you know, for the devil to try to condemn you about how much faith you got. And so she said, what if my faith's not enough? And, and I, the thing that I got the most out of his story, and I don't know if he got this or not. I don't know this wasn't what he was really emphasizing. But the part of the story that I got, and he shared with me, uh, it's been a couple of weeks ago that he told me this. He said this. He said, I told her, honey, we'll get this on my faith. And as soon as he said that, something clicked on the inside of me, and I thought, that's exactly what got this. Now, his daughter's grown. She's married, may have kids, I don't know. But because of that family connection, he exercised authority. There was something, and I don't believe he just said it of himself. I believe that there was something on the inside of him that rose up and took hold of this and said, I'll, we'll get this on my faith. Folks, there's something about being family. You can exercise a greater degree of fam- for family than you can for people that are not part of your family. Now, I wish that was absolute. I wish I could just make family members do whatever I wanted to according to the word. I wish I could make them live right. I wish I could make them give up sin. I wish I could make them walk in health. I wish I could exercise my authority in those things for my family. I'm not talking about my immediate family, but even there. But I wish I could do that. But I don't have that kind of authority where my extended family is concerned. I've tried. I've prayed, Lord, I need something here. I need something where my mother was concerned when she was battling cancer. I tried to get it. I tried to do it on my own faith. I couldn't do it. So I just talked to her day after day after day, just kept putting the word into her, pumping the word into her, pumping the word into her. Finally, she got to the place where the fear left, and when the fear left, the cancer was gone. So many times, folks, it's attached to fear. So many times. But I tried to give it to myself. I, try, I, I asked God for it. Lord, you give me the authority. You give me something from the Holy Ghost where I can just take care of this myself. Doesn't work that way always. One thing that I've found is that the devil will come at you through your kids. You know that as well if you're a parent. If you haven't experienced that, then you can think you're doing it right and everybody else is doing it wrong. But I, I can tell you just where something, something simple like healing is concerned. I would whole lot rather the devil come after me with sickness than bring it on my kids. Because as soon as it comes on my kids, the thought, the fear comes, do they have enough? Do they really know how to do this? Lord, let me just do this for them. Well, you're not supposed to do it for anybody else. But we can help people in prayer. You can help people in prayer. Now turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. I know you're familiar with this. And we'll just take a moment. I know people have got uh, Mother's Day plans and, and all that kind of stuff. So we won't keep you 
overtime this morning, but I do want to share this with you just kind of as, a, uh, as an opening. And then we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go. Paul prays for the church in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, it's interesting that Paul exercised his authority in, in uh, certain ways in specific manners. But in other ways, where his authority was concerned, he was limited by the desires or the wills of the people. For example, he said one of the things in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he was talking about all the things that came on him. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was left for dead, he was all these other kinds of things that happened. He said, the things that, besides these things which are without, the thing that comes upon me daily, which is the care of the churches. Well, Paul started those churches. He established those churches. Those churches were full of people that got saved through his ministry. Why didn't he just exercise authority so that they'd do the right thing? He exercised authority in other areas. He exercised authority in the Corinthian church when sin was, was uh, a particular type of sin was, uh, was causing destruction in the church where the guy took his um, father's wife away from him and they were living openly in sin. He turned that guy over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Notice it wasn't God that destroyed the guy's flesh. It was Satan that did the work. Paul just used the authority that he had as the apostle to that church and turned the guy over so that sin would not infect the rest of the church. Folks, here's the problem. You know, I used to have a real, real issue in the Old Testament. We used to tell my son this. My son would do something. He'd, he'd rebel against something or, or get stubborn about something. I'd say, now, in the Old Testament, they'd stone you for that. Good thing it's not the Old Testament, huh? I'd be taking you out in the middle of the street right now and saying, okay, everybody, come on. And the Bible makes it sound like that's the way it was. And, and that used to bother me. Even when I'd tease him about that, that used to bother me. Why in the world did they stone kids in the Old Testament for being rebellious? Folks, I found the answer. I know what the answer is. So that the rebellion doesn't spread. That's the way sin works. You let sin in the church. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, you let sin, sexual sin get into the church in this way, it'll spread through the church like wildfire. Because people will say, well, if it's not wrong for him to take his mother's wife, and apparently, the, according to the custom, this was an old guy that married a young, ma- a young woman, a young girl, probably close to the age of his son already, so to keep him warm in bed at night. That may not have any sexual meaning whatsoever. And so he looks at her and says, she's my age. We ought to be together. And apparently the church is looking at that saying, oh, isn't that cute? Paul said, no, it's not cute at all. Doesn't matter what the age is. You allow something sacred like that marriage bond to be broken, like that marriage bond to be broken. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what's happening with the gay marriage stuff today. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Some people are saying how our president has evolved. Okay. If he's in my church, I'd turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. (laughs) And I'm not saying that because I have a personal like or dislike or anything about that. That's what happens when you allow things that are wrong in a church. If you don't deal with it, then sin begins to spread. Paul is telling them. He knows. It'll spread into every other kind of sexual sin that you can imagine. Because some other guy is going to look around and say, well, if it's not wrong for him to take his mother's wife, what's wrong with me taking this guy's wife? So Paul exercised that authority. Why didn't he exercise authority over the church just to make them do right? Because authority always has boundaries. So what does Paul do to try to get these people, Christians, filled with the Holy Ghost, they come behind in no good gift, 
they're operating in the in the things of the spirit they are the most well-taught bunch in the 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 whole of of the new testament what does he try to do to get these people to do right first corinthians or, i'm sorry ephesians chapter 1 verse 16 Paul said, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in you as a believer. Now, folks, we've talked about this in different contexts, but I want you to see this. Paul is telling us, that here's how the Holy Ghost is helping me to pray for you because the daily conflict, the daily temptation that I have, that which comes on me every day of my life is the care of the churches. So here's how I can best express my care by the direction of the Holy Ghost. Lord, open their eyes. Why? Why not, Lord, force them to do the right thing? Because it's not Paul's choice. It's not God's choice. It's their choice. It's their choice. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. When it comes to praying for Christians, you get somebody that's open to the things of God, wanting to do what God wants them to do, it is the easiest thing in the world to pray for them. I mean, you pray for them Saturday by Sunday, they're making changes. Because, and, and these are the prayers that I pray. There's another prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 that goes along with this, and that is Ephesians chapter 1 is, Lord, open their eyes to see what to do. Ephesians chapter 3 is strengthen them to do what they see. Those are great prayers to pray for other people. Great prayers to pray for other people. But it's still the other individual's choice. I could pray every day for God to open your eyes and God could show you. And you could refuse to do it. So what do I do? I pray for you tomorrow for God to open your eyes. And maybe you see it again. Maybe it's something that your eyes are open to. It's still your choice as to whether or not to do it. To do otherwise. Folks, if we could control things, why wouldn't we control sinners and make them through our authority get saved? Well, the reason it doesn't work is because that usurps the will of the individual. Then they wouldn't have authority in their lives. I would. That's where people make the mistake with the sovereignty of God doctrine. They think that God being God... And the creator of the universe and all-powerful means that God can just do whatever he wants to. No, he can't because he set it up for you to have authority in your life. I have people all the time come and bless their even even the issue of homosexuality. I've had parents come to me and, and write me and, and, and things like this, and, and it's such a distressing thing for them and these are the stories that you hear when people are trying to get you to believe like they want you to believe well my son came out as as homosexual or my daughter declared that she was homosexual and and i i just love my kids so much and and so they start trying to search the scriptures and and you've got different groups that'll that'll try to prove from the bible that it's okay and and all this kind of stuff well folks like i said earlier the devil always tries to come come at you through your kids and the whole thing is designed to make you change what you know to be right because you love your kids so much. There's such a temptation as parents to do this. This is the very thing that Samuel did in the Old Testament. Not Samuel, Eli. As the priest before God, he wouldn't control his children. 
He kept making his children the exception to the rule. People would come. The Bible tells us that people would come to bring their sacrifices. And these guys would take the women out back and rape them. And Eli would just say, oh, you know, well, boys will be boys. I'm sorry, I'll just pray for you. Folks, you can't change your principles because somebody you know and love is doing the wrong thing. The Word of God still is truth. Now, the only people that don't want absolute truth are the people that want to do whatever they want to without somebody judging them. Yet they're already judged by their own conscience, which is why they fight so hard against it. Don't you dare change the principle of truth because of someone you know or some situation you know or some story you know. The truth is always truth. The spiritual man judges, or woman, judges all things according to the truth of the word. We Christians go underground and just float with whatever happens. Don't be like that. And folks, it's going to be more important for you now in these last days to be a strong spiritual person than it ever has been. Truth is truth no matter what anybody says. No matter how many people say otherwise, the truth is still the truth. With those that want to do the right thing, easiest thing in the world to pray for them. They're open to the Spirit of God. They're open to the plan of God for their own life. Man, husbands and wives ought to be able to pray for each other and get results overnight. Not her change to what I want or me change to what you want, but both of us change to what God wants. You start praying for people that want to do the wrong things, then it gets a little sticky. That's where people want to start trying to take scriptures and twist them around. I've got a guy that's been emailing me for some time and his wife left him. And he's trying to use the Bible to make her come back. Well, good luck with that. I told him that won't work. You can't do that. Well, how can I pray? Ephesians chapter 1. Well, how else can I pray? Ephesians chapter 1. Yeah, but what can I do? Pray Ephesians chapter 1. Yeah, but that's not working. So pray Ephesians chapter 1. Ultimately, it's her choice. Ultimately, it's her choice. But so many times we try to take the principles of the word and try to control other people. And you can't do that. You can't do that. Two people praying the prayer of agreement is two people praying the prayer of faith together. That'll always work. Because we're together in faith based on the word of God. But you got one person praying the word of God and one, another person trying to do the wrong thing. The only thing God can do to answer a prayer is to open their eyes to the truth. He can't make them do it. And wouldn't if he could. Do you see the difference? We have to know where, how far our authority goes. Now, you may think I'm getting negative about this, that you can't change other people and you can't make other people do right. I'm not trying to be negative at all. I've found that the more that I realize the legitimate boundary of my authority, that's where I can take it to the limit. That's where I can say, all right, well, here's as far as I can go. I'm going to push this as far as it goes. I may not be able to get over into this territory, but I can take it here. And, Lord, you hear and answer my prayers. So I can trust for you to show them. And, folks, just because somebody doesn't tell you that God's showing them something doesn't mean they're not seeing something. I've had people that, that have come, turned their lives around and said, you know, it was almost like God was haunting me about this every night when I'd get in bed. I'd see this. I'd see what was going wrong. I'd see what I was supposed to do. 
But they kept resisting, kept resisting until they came to a certain point where they said, okay, I know that's what's right. And that's when they did it. Thank God we have authority in prayer. I don't know if you know this or not, but all of Ephesians chapter 6 where it talks about the armor of God is for the purpose of praying. Put on the whole armor of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all supplication for all saints. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the authority that you've given us in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that we can affect others. We thank you, Father, that we can take the truth of your word and bring blessing to those that we love. We thank you for the additional authority that we have where our family is concerned. Show us the extent of that authority, Father, so that we can use every bit that we have. Show us, Father, how we can most effectively pray for those that we see that are in sin and wrongdoing. Not to bring condemnation or judgment against them, Father, but to help them make corrections so that they can come back into your perfect will. Father, I know there are mothers today that are hurting because of their children not walking with you. Comfort them and show them how they can most effectively pray and live before their children to make a difference. Father, we thank you that you want people to change and turn around and to walk with you even more than we want them to. Lead us by the Holy Ghost. Direct us so that we walk in conjunction with you, in cooperation with you to affect that outcome. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us at 5 o'clock for prayer school and 6 o'clock for healing school if you can.